Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 173, The March on Pittsburgh. Last time out, we looked at the outbreak of the Whiskey Rebellion in the summer of 1794. With the Battle of Bower Hill, the two movements that had been brewing along the frontier, that of local elites rising petitions, and a more violent general population, finally merged. And they were left asking themselves where they should go from here. They decided to hold an assembly at Mingo Creek on July the 23rd, and this blending of class participation was obvious. An observer at the time wrote, The people engaged in the present opposition to government must not be considered as an inconsiderable mob. They are a respectable and powerful combination. Although it's not obvious how united this effort was. Some of the leadership of the rebellion would later say they were only acting in the way they did under threat from the crowd, which is a pretty convenient excuse if you no longer wish to be associated with what would happen. There were two main suggestions for what to do next. Hugh Henry Breckenridge proposed a mass application for amnesty, as while the action at Bower Hill was morally right, legally they had been in the wrong, and it was within Washington's authority to call the militia on them. Then, on the other end of the scale, was David Bradford, who spoke more violently and had the crowd's favour. He didn't really have any concrete plans other than dissuading the crowd from marching on Pittsburgh. The meeting broke up with a decision that they would meet again on August the 14th, which pleased the moderates, but not the radicals. Some tried recruiting Virginians to the cause, while anonymous threats were sent to waverers in the community, and stills were destroyed. A group with Bradford then set about intercepting post, and on July 26th they captured letters going from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia including letters from local townspeople condemning the riots. This prompted the following letter to be distributed around the western counties. Quote, So, having had suspicions that the Pittsburgh Post would carry with him the sentiments of some of the people in this country, respecting our present alarming situation, and the letters by the Post being now in our possession, by which certain secrets are discovered, hostile to our interest. It is therefore now come to that crisis that every citizen must express his sentiments, not by his words, but by his actions. You are then called upon as a citizen of the Western country to render your personal service with as many volunteers as you can raise to rendezvous at your usual place of meeting on Wednesday next." and from thence he will march to the general rendezvous at Braddock's Field on the Monagaly River on Friday the 1st day of August, next to be there at 3 o'clock p.m., with arms and accoutrements in good order. If any volunteer should want arms and accoutrements, bring them forward, and they shall be supplied as well as possible. Here, sir, is an expedition purposed in which you will have an opportunity of displaying your military talents and of rendering services to your country. Some days provisions will be wanted, so let the men be thus supplied. End quote. 
This letter, as I'm sure you can imagine, greatly troubled the citizens of Pittsburgh, who decided to hold a town meeting on July 31st to decide what to do. They resolved to expel from the city the three individuals who had written the incendiary letters, to appoint a committee which would let the rebels know they supported them, and to go out and meet them at Braddock's Field. They would also send a delegate to the meeting due on August 14th. There are questions over the motivations behind these actions, with fear, rather than genuine sympathy, seeming to be the leading factor. An indicator of true feeling being that while the militia travelled to Braddock's Field, those who stayed behind were hiding valuables. It seems like, at this point, the leadership tried to back out of the march, but those who wavered were vilified. One leader had his house tarred and feathered. So, the leaders decided to double down. Brackenridge, who you'll remember earlier pushing for a moderate position, said, Bradford, seeing the violence of the multitude, by which he was always governed, became more inflammatory than he had ever been, and denied that he had consented to a countermand. On August 1st, 7,000 rebels appeared at Braddock's Field. This was a sizable group, but wasn't exactly a disciplined fighting force, the type of which insurgencies are made of. Contemporaries described the majority as miserably poor, which does get to the heart of what we're dealing with here. These were miserably poor people. They were living in poverty and felt betrayed and abandoned by Eastern elites. The whiskey excise may have been the catalyst, but this was more a general economic protest. Only perhaps one third of those present actually owned stills. This change in focus was reflected in the choice of target for the rebels. It shifted from government officers to the commercially well-off, hence the choice of Pittsburgh, or, as the insurgents had renamed it, Sodom. The exact intention of the rebels is uncertain, but there appear to have been three factions within the group, variously determined to capture it, loot it, and destroy it. But none of these things actually happened. A critical factor is that the offensive townspeople had been expelled. Given that, and that they were met with camaraderie and whiskey, the rebels were persuaded that they would be unable to selectively burn houses without damaging the rest. Then there was also the fear factor. The principal military defensive point at Pittsburgh was Fort Fayette, named after our old friend Lafayette, which had been established two years previously. The aim of the more radical members appears to have been principally to seize the fort to take its supplies, and then to use this as a base. The leadership included former revolutionaries, and they planned to use the same tactics as the Americans had used against the British. However, the leadership wavered. They asked permission to walk peaceably past the fort into Pittsburgh, then to head home. The commander told the rebels they could make their peaceable intentions clear by walking out of range of the guns, at which point the leadership lost its nerve completely and they took another road. The rebel force lacked purpose, and so it dispersed. Now, 
At this point, it's understandable why the federal government might be panicking. Over the course of a few weeks, a situation had escalated from writs being handed to distillers, to a skirmish involving several hundred people at Power Hill, to a force of 7,000 gathering outside of Pittsburgh, threatening to severely damage the city. This was only 250 miles away from the national capital. Violence was spreading into Virginia, Maryland and Ohio. This had all happened in a matter of weeks. Who was to say what would happen next? Or if whatever that next situation was could be handled as peacefully. But we know differently. This would be the high watermark of the Whiskey Rebellion. There were lots of unhappy people, but unhappy people does not a revolution make. They needed a degree of organisation and clear objectives lacked both. There were a lot of people who wanted a lot of different things. This might be union with Britain or Spain, independence or simply economic relief. But there was nobody driving any one of these visions and no plans being made on how these contradicting goals could be accomplished. Time was destined to be victorious. On August the 14th, the insurgents met as scheduled with about 250 delegates attending. The moderates held the day, and they issued a number of conciliatory resolutions. These protested the excise tax specifically, not taxation in general, and they petitioned Congress to repeal the whiskey excise and replace it with a less odious tax. They also appointed a committee to meet with state or federal officials to negotiate an end to the rural upheavals. This appeared to be the best the moderates could achieve, given the anger at play here, as they sought to wound down the violence. But in Philadelphia, the federal government was also taking action. I'm now going to quote a section of a presidential proclamation. Quote, and whereas, by a law of the United States, entitled An Act to Provide for the Calling Forth, the Militia to Execute the Laws of the Union, Suppress Insurrectionists, and Repel Invasions, it is enacted that whenever the laws of the United States shall be opposed, or the execution thereof obstructed in any state by combinations too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, or by the powers vested in the marshals by that act, the same being notified by an associate justice or the district judge, it shall be lawful for the President of the United States to call forth the militia of such state to suppress such combinations and to cause the laws to be duly executed. And if the militia of a state, when such combinations may happen, shall refuse or be insufficient to suppress the same, it shall be lawful for the President, if the legislature of the United States shall not be in session, to call forth and employ such numbers of the militia of any other state or states most convenient thereto as may be necessary, and the use of the militia so to be called forth may be continued, if necessary, until the expiration of 30 days after the commencement of the ensuing session." provided always that whenever it may be necessary in the judgment of the President to use the military force hereby directed to be called forth, the President shall forthwith, and previous thereto by proclamation, 
command such insurgents to disperse and retire peacefully to their respective abodes within a limited time. It is, in my judgment, necessary, under the circumstances of the case, to take measures for calling forth the militia in order to suppress the combinations aforesaid and to cause the laws to be duly executed, and I have accordingly determined so to do, feeling the deepest regret for the occasion, but with all the most solemn conviction that the essential interests of the Union demand it, that the very existence of government and the fundamental principles of social order are materially involved in the issue, and that the patriotism and firmness of all good citizens are seriously called upon, as occasions may require, to aid in the effectual suppression of so fatal a spirit. Therefore, and in pursuance of the proviso above recited, I, George Washington, President of the United States, do hereby command all persons, being insurgents, as aforesaid, and all others whom it may concern, on or before the first day of September next, to disperse and retire peacefully to their respective abodes. And I do moreover warn all persons, whomsoever acting, aiding, abetting, or comforting the perpetrators of the aforesaid treasonable acts, and do require all officers and other citizens, according to their respective duties, and the laws of our land, to exert their utmost endeavours to prevent and suppress such dangerous proceedings. In testimony whereof I have caused the seal of the United States of America to be affixed to these presents, and signed the same with my hand, done at the city of Philadelphia, the 7th day of August, 1794, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 19th. End quote. This is where we shall leave things for this week. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.